If you're the kind of person who's doing math now and figuring out that we're going to be in Joshua till the middle of 2021, don't worry. We're starting out a little bit slow, but we'll pick up steam here. Uh, this first chapter sets out the key themes and issues of the book. So we're starting out a little bit slow, chewing on these verses, but we'll move at a bit quicker speed uh, as things progress here. Give your ear now to the reading of God's word, Joshua 1, 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you have set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon and from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Among many other things, literary critics, you know, people who teach English at schools, that sort of thing, study literature, often look at how a work of literature begins and how it ends. The beginning of a work of literature sets up the world of the story. It gives us key bits of information. It sets up the key themes that the work is going to be about. The beginning of some novels is entirely forgettable. I really like the novel Jurassic Park, and I've read it three or four times. But for the life of me, I can't remember how the book begins, what the first line is. But other novels, you probably know from the very first line. Okay, so it's, it's, it's quiz night time here, guys. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Anyone? <laughs> You're not off to a good start, Jack. <laughs> yeah, the Hobbit, right? How, how about this one? Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, that's right. I finished Moby Dick last year. It took me two years, but I, I've read the entire thing. How about, uh, here's one, and I, I'm, I'm looking at the Love Green Girl specifically here. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. Yeah, Anya got it. And how about this one? Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Yeah, Christmas Carol, that's right. Well, the book of Joshua actually begins fairly similar to a Christmas carol. The book of Deuteronomy has just ended. If, you're, if you look in your Bible on the page right on the other side, it just ended by saying Moses was dead. And now the book of Joshua begins by saying two times in two verses that Moses is dead. It begins in the first verse. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. We might take a lead from Charles Dickens and even translate the opening verse. Moses was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. So why does Joshua begin by repeatedly telling us what we already know from the end of Deuteronomy, that Moses was dead? 
Why would this be a theme that the book of Joshua wants to pick up on? Well, it picks up on it because one of the main issues in the book of Joshua is raised by the death of Moses. The death of Moses leads to a crisis in godly leadership. The death of Moses leads to a crisis in godly leadership. Israel is asking, who will lead God's people now? Moses has outlasted two generations of Israelites. The generation in the book of, Moses, in, in the book of Joshua, this generation that's alive now, Moses is the only leader they have ever known. It's a bit like I think that was Blaze's note saying, Pastor Bert, you've preached to me for the 12 years of my life. That's it. Pastor Bert's the only pastor he's ever known. And so the question is, what will godly leadership look like moving forward? Moses spoke to God face to face. Will the next leader keep receiving new laws? Moses interceded for the people when they rebelled. Will the next leader continue to intercede? And here we get to the first truth of three truths I want to look at in our passage this morning. The first truth is this. God gives his people leaders. God gives his people leaders. We see this truth right here in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, get up and go, lead this people into the land. After the death of Moses, the Lord doesn't say, now you're in 40 days of mourning. He doesn't say, build a memorial to Moses, my servant. He doesn't say any of those things. No, he calls a new leader to continue leading. And in fact, this question of godly leadership is one of the main themes of the whole book of Joshua. What does a godly leader look like? And frankly, the need for godly leadership is what makes this book of Joshua so relevant to our situation today. It makes it so relevant in our world. We need godly leadership in our church. In Wiser Lake Chapel here, we're in a season of leadership transition. We're taking nominations to elect two new leaders. Last week, Pastor Burt finished up the book of Matthew, and at the end of the year, he's going to retire. And Pastor Nathan is now starting Joshua. Of course, I'm not saying Pastor Bird is Moses, and I'm not saying I'm some sort of Joshua, certainly not. But it's natural, nevertheless, to raise these sorts of questions, that we have a new leader, and will we remain faithful in this new season? Will the new leader do things different? Yes, sometimes. Will different mean worse? Yes, sometimes. Will the leader make, new leader make mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. But, but, the real question is this, will we stay faithful as a church, even with a new leader. Our country is littered with churches that had seasons of liveliness and spiritual growth. But as the years wore on, church leaders changed, one generation replaced another, and somewhere along the way, the churches quit being faithful. Uh, you know, last week we talked uh, at the Reformation Sunday in the evening service, talked about the Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards and these Dutch churches and the Puritans in England. And I was Googling, just out of curiosity, if you Google First Church Northampton, where Jonathan Edwards was the preacher during the Great Awakening, and you click on their first tab, Welcome, do you want to guess what the very first thing you'll see is? <laughs> it's nothing about the gospel. It's nothing about Jesus. It's we are an open and affirming church. <laughs> That's the very first thing they're saying, is that we are pushing uh, progressive sexual ethics in this congregation. You think this is the church that Jonathan Edwards led during a great season of revival. And yet one leader is replaced by another, one generation is replaced by another, and somewhere along the way, people quit being faithful. 
So we need godly leaders in our church, but we also need godly leadership in our jobs. I've enjoyed sitting in Leslie Sebring's Sunday School class this fall and hearing about the different careers that many of you are involved in. Some of you are in official leadership roles at your work. You manage teams. Uh, you manage your own business. Others of you have no official leadership position, but you lead by your character and compassion. And some of you, frankly, are praying desperately that a leader at work would be fired and replaced by a more godly leader. We need godly leaders in our work that don't bulldoze over people. And we need godly leadership in our families. If our families are going to do more than simply survive, if they're going to thrive, we can't simply react, but we need to lead. We need to make decisions about the rhythms of our family life, the patterns that we adhere to about our standards and rules. We need to make decisions about how we're going to use our resources and our time. We have to lead our families. And finally, we even need godly leadership in our own lives. So I'm, I'm trying to make sure everyone realizes that this theme is relevant to them. But uh, in a recent article in the Harvard Business Review, the author asks, are you more likely to use this phrase in conversation, I live my life this way, or I lead my life this way. And he comments that although I lead my life in a certain way, maybe an older way of talking, it's actually the better way to talk because it recognizes the, lead, the need even for self-leadership. Even as an individual, even as a single person, you need to make intentional decisions. You need to learn from your past failings so you can continue moving forward and growing. You need to be conscientious if you want to lead a life well-lived. So what does it mean to be a godly leader? To lead is simply to guide, to direct a course of action, thought, or opinion. So what is a godly leader? A godly leader is not necessarily the most charismatic personality that draws other people to their goals. A godly leader is not necessarily the best at setting up organizational flowcharts or writing really cool mission statements or pitching a new vision to people. Those are all helpful as a leader, but when you boil it down, Godly leadership is right here in verse 1. To be a godly leader is first and foremost to be a servant of God. This is how Moses is described. Look at it. It's not Moses, the leader of God's people, has died. It's not Moses, the great lawgiver. It's not Saint Moses, but simply Moses, the servant of the Lord. The core of godly leadership is actually first and foremost to be a follower, to be at God's disposal, to be God's servant. The godly leader knows that he or she is never the highest authority in any situation that they're in. They're never at the top of the organizational chart. The godly leader is always somewhere in the middle, under God's authority, and exercising the authority that they have been given by God to further God's own mission to God's glory. Well, in our text, Joshua, you know, God gives his people leaders, and God gives his people Joshua in this chapter here. He says, Joshua is going to be the next leader of my people. We look here through chapter 1. God commissions Joshua, and he gives him three things. And we're going to look at these actually this week, next week, and the following week. The first is God gives Joshua a mission. He says, you're going to lead, and you're going to lead doing this specific thing that we'll look at in just a moment here. He says, you're going to lead these people into the land, and you're going to help them conquer the land, and you're going to give this land to the people as their territory. So he's appointed not just generically, you're the leader and you can go do whatever you want, but he's appointed to a specific task. Second, 
in verses 6 through 9 that we'll look at next week, God gives Joshua a specific manner of carrying out this task. We'll look at that next week. And then finally, in verses 10 through 18, God gives Joshua co-workers, that he's not a lone wolf off on his own. He doesn't go out and say, I conquered the land while you guys were all sleeping. Now we can go in and inhabit it. But he works with others. Those are important parts of, of, of godly mission. So what is the mission that, that, that God gives Joshua? He gives Israel Joshua as a leader, and he gives Joshua a specific mission. We see this in verses 2 and then going on. He says, you and all these people get up, cross the river into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. Go all about, I'm going to give them this land as I promised Moses. And in fact, here we hit on a key truth. This language of promise, that God has promised it to Moses, and then later in verse uh, 6, it says, I promised this land even to your forefathers way back before Moses. This theme that God had promised the land underlies this transition of leaders. Underlying the transition from Moses to Joshua is God's promises. And so here is the second truth in our passage that we need to catch. The second truth we need to talk about is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. If you were reading this passage for the very first time, if you never had any prior knowledge of the Bible, and when you read the verses we just read, you'd have all kinds of, no of questions. Who is this Moses who had died? Who is Israel who's getting this land? And why in the world is God giving them this land? What did they do to earn it? Well, we have to remember that the book of Joshua is about the fulfillment of promises that were made a long time before. One of our kids' is, uh, classes is reading the Fellowship of the Rings, this term. And because of a typo in their handout assignment, they skipped reading the first two chapters. And Kelsey and I kept saying, this has to be a mistake. How can you even understand the book if you skip the first two chapters? And in the same way, if we skip the first five chapters, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if we skip over all that, we can't really understand what's going on in the book of Joshua. We have to keep in mind that in Joshua, Joshua is keeping promises, or God is keeping promises that he made a long time ago. Okay, so very, very briefly, put our story, Joshua, within the broader context. In Genesis, we're told God made the whole world. In that world, he planted a garden, and he put people in it that he wanted to walk with. God's purpose was to be with God's people in God's place under God's rule. But as you know, those people, Adam and Eve, they didn't follow God's rule. They refused to lead under God's authority and tried to set themselves up as absolute authorities, leaders apart from God. They rebelled against God's rule. God, of course, knew that this would not work out, that it would lead to death, destruction, and misery. But God didn't leave these people in this state of sin and misery. No, he calls Abraham in Genesis 12 to lead, leave Mesopotamia and to follow God where he's leading. And in Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Notice God's purpose with Abraham is his purpose he's had all along, to be with God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so he calls Abraham, he says, your descendants will be my people. And they're going to have this land, which will be my place that I want you to be in. And then he's going to give them these laws that we read about in Exodus. And so God starts bringing these purposes about through Abraham. So God keeps his promises, and we have reason to hope. 
But through these promises, through this whole story, God is telling a story with the world, a story that involves sinful, broken, hurting people. And this story takes place in a sinful, broken, hurting world. And so, frankly, God's world, their story is full of tragedy and hardship. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children, and yet God says, I'm going to give you children. But it doesn't happen right away. There were years and years before they finally had a son. And those of you who have struggled with fertility know that's not an easy thing to struggle with. For years and years, God has promised children, and yet it does not come about. Until finally, a decade later, they have one son when they die. By the end of Genesis, Isaac's son, Jacob, has 12 sons. And Jacob and his 12 sons, together with their wives and children, 70 people in all, they migrate down to Egypt. And for a while, it's a great situation. And it looks like God's promises are finally starting to be fulfilled. Abraham's descendants are starting to grow into a nation. They're starting to prosper. But by the end of that 400 years, the rulers in Egypt turn against Israel. They enslave the Israelites, and they even start putting the Israelites' infant sons to death. God's keeping his promises, but it's not an easy path. It's a path marked by hardship and tragedy. This is a reality we have to wrestle with, that God is faithful to his promises to his church, his promises to you and I. And yet, God's faithfulness doesn't mean that it's always easy, that it's always happy and straightforward. That the path that God follows keeping his promises is not easy, but it is often marked by hardship and tragedy. Then jumping ahead to the end of this 400 years, God calls Moses, like he called Abraham, to lead Israel out of Egypt. And God makes new promises to Moses in, chapter, in Exodus 3. He says, I will be with you. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. So in the midst of this situation of tragedy, there's nevertheless hope and God keeps his promises. But even here in the book of Numbers, we read that Moses gets frustrated with how long things are taking. He gets frustrated with how difficult the thing is. And he tries to lead God's people against God's command. That he uh, doesn't listen to what God says at one point. And so as a result, Moses himself is not allowed to enter the promised land. So even Moses' death at the, that this chapter begins with, it's the end of a life faithful live, lived faithfully. It's the end of the life of a servant used by God. And yet, nevertheless, it's a reminder that Moses died outside the land because even Moses, at a point, rebelled against God's word. So God keeps his promises. And we see here in Joshua uh, chapter 1 that God is making new promises. See here in verse 5, God promises Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will neither fail you nor forsake you. We'll see in coming weeks throughout the book of Joshua that God is faithful and he keeps his promises to be with Joshua. Now some of you this morning... I know are facing uh, difficulties. I don't know what those are, but at work, at home, whatever they are. And you hear God making a promise like this to Joshua, saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you. You think, gee, wouldn't that be nice to have that kind of promise from God? And indeed, it would be nice. But here's the good news, guys, is in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews actually quotes this very verse from Joshua. The writer of the book of Hebrews chapter 13, he says, keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hence, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. 
what can man do to me? In Hebrews, this promise given to Joshua is given to all Christians. God says he will never leave you. He will never leave you, friends. He will never forsake you. You can confidently say, the Lord is your helper. There's nothing to fear. God promises to be with you. So we see God gives his people leaders. God keeps his promises. And here's the third truth in this passage. God's keeping these promises, but he's working through people to do it. God works through his servants. This is the third truth of this passage. God works through his servants. And so in verses 2 through 5 of, of this passage we're looking at, Joshua is given a mission. God says, I'm keeping these promises, but you play a role in this. I'm working through you, Joshua. And this mission he's given in, in verses 2 through 5 actually is a preview of the whole book. If you have your Bible open, you can see this. In verse 2, God says to Joshua, arise and cross over this Jordan River. And so chapters 1 and 2 are about making preparations to cross over the river. And then chapters 3 and 5 describe the process of crossing the river as a nation. So we'll look at that in the coming weeks. Then in verse 3, God says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot treads upon, I have given to you. And in chapters 5 through 12, we read about God giving the land to Israel. We read about this conquest, these battles. And then uh, in, in verse uh, 4, it, it describes the extent of the territory. It says, your territory will, will go from this wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun. All of this is going to be your territory. And this hints forward to the dividing of the land in chapters 13 through 21, that after Israel inhabits the land, it gets divided amongst the different tribes. And then finally, verse 5 promises, all the days of your life I will be with you. And the book ends in chapters 22 through 24 about Joshua in his old age and how God is still working with him at his old age. So right here in the first couple of verses, you get this major theme introduced, that God... Uh, uh, the theme of godly leadership in the book. And then you also kind of get a table of contents. So these verses lay out what's coming. Crossing the river, fighting these battles, dividing the land, and Joshua in his old age. Now I can tell you real quickly, just like that, what Joshua's mission is, is to lead Israel into the land and drive the people who are in the land out of it so he can give it to the Israelites. But we have to be honest, Joshua's mission that he's given raises serious questions for contemporary readers. A lot of people read this and they think, I don't know that I feel comfortable with this mission God has given Joshua. This book's a favorite with kids, but it troubles many adults. So, for example, the uh, famous atheist Richard Dawkins says, the Bible story of Joshua's invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give to your children to form their morals. And yet this is precisely what Christians say, is that this is a book you give to your children to form their morals. Now, frankly, there's no easy solution to these sorts of objections. And we can't simply ignore the question. So this morning I'm going to offer three considerations as we start out on the book of Joshua. Here's some ways of handling these sorts of concerns. But we're going to have to keep wrestling with these questions as we work through the book. After all, we want to say Joshua is God's word. And therefore, we trust that it will form our morals correctly. And so we need to think about how that is the case. 
the first brief consideration here is we need to ask whose land is this anyways? The book of Joshua does not claim the land for Israel because of ethnic superiority. It doesn't say the land is Israel's because they have the strongest military. It's not might makes right. It doesn't even say that the land is Israel's because Abraham was in it first. If it said some of these things, maybe Dawkins' objection would have merit. No, uh, Joshua thinks about the land in a different way. Psalm 24.1 puts it clearly. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The entire earth belongs to God, every nation. And Joshua is completely in line with this. The land is not Israel's to take. It is God's to give. And so eight times in this first chapter, God says, I am giving this land to you. This is the land I have given to you. I am giving this land to you. The whole earth belongs to God, and he is free to move a nation from one area to another. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God kind of puts the Israelites in their place a little bit, and he says, what I'm doing with you moving you into this land, I'm doing this all the time. I move Esau's descendants, Edom, into their land. I move these other nations, the Amorites, into their land. Then I'm moving nations around all the time. Because we say the movements of all nations are under God's providence. So whose land is it? It's God's land. And if you keep reading along in the story, when Israel disobeys God's law, Israel goes into exile and also gets pushed out of the land. Whose land is it? It's God's land. The second question we have to ask is, who is Israel? Of course, in one sense, Israel is Abraham's descendants. But in the first covenant, as well as in the New Testament, the new covenant, Israel is not simply an ethnic group. The book of Exodus says when Moses led the people out of Egypt, that a mixed multitude leaves Egypt with the Israelites. And as we work through the book of Joshua, we'll see that this question of who is Israel is raised in a variety of ways. The prostitute Rahab joins Israel through her steadfast love shown to the Israelite spies and their God. On the other hand, the ethnic Israelite Achan opts out. He is placed under the band and treated as one of the foreigners because he breaks God's law. The Gibeonites join Israel even through deception. But Joshua still honors the covenant with them. Remember in, ch in chapter 5 of Joshua, or, or, or um, that we'll look at in a few weeks here, Joshua meets this commander of the Lord's armies, an angel, and he asks this commander, he says, are you for us or for our enemies? Whose side are you on, Israel's side or Jericho's side? The commander says, no. I'm not on your side or their side. I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And this is the basic question in the book of Joshua. It's not, is God for us or for them? The question is, are you for God? God isn't on any human side, but humans may be on God's side by conforming to his plan. The third consideration we need to wrestle with is this. The book of Joshua is uncomfortable to us because we see people being judged. The fact of the matter is, we really don't like the reality that God judges. But it's inescapable. It's inescapable. God is a just God who judges sin. All the way back in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants will not immediately inherit the promised land, but instead are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. And the reason God says this is he says, because the sin of the Amorites, the people in the land, is not yet complete. God's saying, I'm actually not going to give you the land now. I'm going to give the people in the land another 400 years of patience and opportunity to repent. 
So the emphasis, even in the book of Joshua, is not on God's immediate judgment, but on his long patience that is finally coming to a head. But the reality of temporal judgment in the time of Joshua is a reminder of the certainty of a final judgment that will one day be faced by all people. You and I will one day face God's judgment. And either that judgment is set aside because Christ Jesus has been judged in our place, or we have to face that judgment ourselves. Now, to read the book of Joshua rightly, as we wrap up here, we need to recognize that none of us are called to the same mission as Joshua. The book of Joshua doesn't say, Joshua went and destroyed Jericho because he wanted their land, and therefore you go and do the same thing. You know, some of you are looking for new houses, and that would be kind of nice if you could just drive out the inhabitants and take it, wouldn't it? But uh, that's not what the book of Joshua is saying. We have to recognize that God gives us different missions than Joshua, and so we pursue those missions in the same way, in faithfulness to God, and yet our mission is different. And yet God does give his servants, you and I, missions. And so there's a mission set before you. Maybe you're in a point of transition and facing uncertainty. Uh, college students trying to figure out what to do next, or you're between jobs or careers, or you're recently retired, and you're facing uncertainty. What is the mission before me? You're asking, what is the mission God has given you? Well, we find the mission God has given us as his servants. It's a dynamic between two things. The general mission God gives to all of his people and the particulars of the situation that you're in. Last week, remember, we talked about the Great Commission and the cultural mandate, these great instructions given to all people. In Genesis 1, all mankind is told to steward God's creation, to cultivate the world into a place where all people and creatures flourish. So we're all called to contribute to the flourishing of the world. And we're all called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and souls and all our might and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if you're a Christian disciple, you too are called to make disciples. You're called to disciple your children. You're called to disciple others. So there's some generals that we're all called to. But what this plays out like looks different in each of our particular situations. For parents and grandparents, making disciples and loving neighbors means caring for young children. For some of you, it might mean caring for a spouse who's not well. For students, loving your neighbor means putting up with your classmates. So there's this dynamic relationship back and forth between man's chief end is to glorify God and these immediate ends, the possibilities open to us and responsibilities set before us in our current situation. I'm not much of a gun guy, but I've, I've a few times shot some old 22s that had iron sights on it. And you know the iron sight, you have a sight at the front of the barrel and at the back of the barrel. And you can kind of raise the back sight up and down to adjust it to make sure you're shooting true. And this is kind of what it's like, is that the the end sight that we all have is we're to glorify God, that we're to make disciples, we're to cultivate creation. It's things set before all of us. But this other end sight that we can adjust a little bit, that's our particular situation, that where we're at, that looks different, what we're sighting. And maybe where you're at, you need to adjust that a little bit today to make sure you're lined up better and that you're aiming where you need to be aiming. And you know, I, I mean, when you're shooting a rifle, if you only get one sight lined up, you know, you're not going to hit the target. Or if you get the other sight lined up, it's got to, both sights need to be lined up. And it's the same way that, that there's this general mission that we're all using and our particulars. And they both need to line up if we want to fulfill the mission God has set before us. So God has set before you a mission, and that's, I know you'd love for me just to tell you what it is and what to do, but it's not for me to tell you. It's for you to work through in your own particular situation. 
Here's the last thing we need to recognize. Is God set, gives us a mission. He works through us as his servants, just like he works through Joshua as his servant. Here's the very last thing. Is that we begin not at the beginning, but at the very end. We begin at the very end. If we want to serve God, we begin at the end. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Joshua was a faithful leader who led God's people faithfully. But the rest that he brought was only temporary. If you keep reading through the book of, of Joshua and then you start in Judges, you see very quickly generation after generation declines. Leaders actually lead people away from God. People are back into their sinfulness. Joshua is a good leader. He brought his people rest, but it wasn't permanent rest. And yet the second truth I told you is true. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises even, even when his servants aren't keeping their end of the deal. As we read on, we realize what this actually means. It means God keeps his promises means that God himself enters the story to keep God's promises. And so Jesus, whose name, Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua. Jesus is the second Joshua who comes to lead his people. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we read, if Joshua had given the Israelites permanent rest, Joshua wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Joshua does set before us a model of godly leadership that we should all strive to follow. But we begin at the end. We don't earn a rest for ourselves. A rest has already been earned for us. Jesus has made a way for us to rest in God himself. So we follow Joshua's model, but we start with the rest Jesus has already won for us. We ultimately hope in Christ, the second Joshua, who keeps God's promises. Keeping this promise involves tragedy and hardship. It's never easy. Keeping this promise meant Jesus had to die, as we looked at a few weeks ago. But in the end, he kept God's promises to us, and as we looked at two weeks ago, he rose again. And so we have this magnificent hope before us as well. So friends, what is the mission God has set before you? You need to be adjusting your sights a little bit. Be hitting the mission God has set before you? Or do you need to be depending on God's promises for you this morning? Have you been trying to rest in other things besides Jesus alone, our true rest? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the model of Joshua. We thank you for his model of faithful leadership. We thank you for the call that it gives to us to be godly leaders in our own lives, in our families, and in our communities. We ask, Lord, this morning that we would face two challenges. First, that we would be uh, godly leaders after the model of Joshua. As we study this book together over the coming weeks, help us to learn lessons about how we can better lead our lives, lead our families, lead our communities, lead our church. Help us, Lord, to not shy away from the difficulties that come with godly leadership. But even more pivotal than that, 
Help us, Lord, to rest in Jesus and in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. You are a righteous judge that will one day judge all sin. And so let us rest in Jesus, who is judged on our behalf, not on our own merit, not in what we do ourselves. We know, Lord, that even retirement doesn't bring true rest, that earnings, savings, anything we do, any promotion we get, graduating high school, none of it brings true rest. But true rest is found in you alone. So this morning, Lord, comfort those who are feeling harried, who are feeling rushed, who are feeling overwhelmed. Comfort them and give them the rest that comes with Christ alone. Amen.